Welcome to the Immigration Hour. It's great to be back with you today. We've changed our broadcasting format a little bit, uh, and we're now loading our podcast directly on our website at www.immigration.net, and then throwing it out there to the greater world on Stitcher and iTunes and and various other uh, platforms for the Immigration Hour. But it's great to be with you. Uh, You know, we have talked now for over a decade on the Immigration Hour uh, about the various aspects of immigration, immigration law, immigration policy, and the effects of immigration on our economy and our society. And it's been interesting to watch over the last, really the last three years or so, uh, from the moment that Trump came down that escalator, I guess it's almost four years now, um, uh, railing on uh, immigrants uh, in ways that were destructive and very hurtful uh, to a lot of people. To see him uh, now uh, really uh, on the cusp of a crisis, a crisis that he has intentionally created uh, by not uh, using the mechanisms in his control uh, through the Immigration Service, the USCIS, CBP, and ICE to properly handle the greater volume of people that are coming across the border uh, without papers and those that are simply applying for asylum. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it's his own fault. We have a really interesting problem going on in the Trump administration. The anti-immigration forces like FAIR and CIS, Jeff Sessions and, and Senator Gratzley, who have really targeted immigration and immigrants for their entire existence, are now internally fighting because the one man who now has the president's ear on immigration, Stephen Miller, a 33-year-old know-nothing, uh, is now in charge, apparently, of immigration policy more so than the elected officials, more so than the people nominated by a president to run his agencies and his departments. And so you have a fight now where people like Fair and Grassley are fighting against Miller and the things that he wants to do to change immigration policy in ways that will be wildly harmful to the United States uh, and, of course, to immigrants uh, more directly. Uh, Right now, uh, Miller's uh, big uh, fight is trying to get the USCIS to implement the public charge memo. Now, we've spent a a couple of different shows talking in detail about the public charge memo. And it's been held back intentionally uh, by some, I think, career people at DHS and some more senior level people at DHS because they know the outcry that will be caused when you start denying people citizenship, permanent residence, or other types of legal status based upon their perspective use of uh, benefits uh, or their past use of benefits in the United States. Well, we don't have to go very far to see this currently in effect. So while the DHS's regulation on changing the uh, criteria used for determining public charge uh, are not currently in place, uh, they're currently just sitting out there, um, the State Department 
has in fact already implemented this particular policy without really undergoing any policy uh, process. There, the Department of State does not generally go through the APA. Uh, and what the Department of State is doing is relying on the statute itself uh, and simply interpreting it in a different way than they ever have interpreted it before. There was a great article in Reuters uh, that showed up yesterday uh, talking about Arturo, Arturo Balbino, a Texas construction worker who walked into his inter- interviews interview at the American consulate in Ciudad Juarez. He wasn't nervous. He felt good. Here's why. He had been in the United States for 14 years. He had a U.S. citizen spouse. He had kids in the United States. He had a waiver already approved for his unlawful presence in the United States. He had a father-in-law who had pledged in an affidavit to financially support him if necessary and a letter from his employer guaranteeing him an 18-hour-per-job upon his return. When he went for the interview, he was at the final step of legalizing his status. Uh, which would, of course, allow him to return to the United States with permanent residence and really get his family on the path forward uh, to change generations. Instead, the consular officer denied his application on the grounds that he could become a drain on U.S. taxpayers by requiring government financial assistance. The thing about the Department of State at U.S. consulates, when they deny a visa, they simply check a box that says, oh, you're inadmissible because you're a public charge. They don't explain why they believe you would be a public charge. How a man, who, who is likely already making, because he's probably already been working in the United States, $18 an hour, which is close to about $38,000 a year, um, with a wife and a couple of kids, far, far above the poverty level guidelines, just for him. With a father-in-law who made far above the guidelines, who was willing to enter and, in fact, entered into a contract between him, the United States government, and this individual as well, Arturo as well, um, to say, look, if he goes on welfare, you, you come after me, I'll pay it back. And yet they still denied the visa. That is a function of the actual statute uh, that you will find in Section 212 of the Immigration Nationality Act. Now, when Congress wrote this particular statute, um, it became clear within a couple of years that if they interpreted it literally, uh, because many immigrants uh, come here, they're not the richest people in the world. Uh, they come for sometimes lower level, many times lower level jobs. Uh, a lot of times they're young when they immigrate, so they're not enjoying their maximum potential of earnings yet. Um, that it would lead to an extraordinary amount of denials. And it was interpreted, and has been interpreted for over 20 years, to say, look, as long as you've got an affidavit of support, a Form I-864, a contract between you, the U.S. government, uh, uh, and this, this U.S. citizen, whether it's your spouse or an immediate relative or anybody else who wants to sign that contract, uh, that makes far above the poverty level income, then, uh, or you have assets uh, that, that suggest that you could liquidate and live on, then we're going to let you in the country. But the Trump administration has really, through the Department of State, <clears throat> reinterpreted this particular process uh, and is uh, uh, we're seeing a large increase. We had a couple of clients denied for this uh, early on in the Trump administration, uh, mid-2017. We began then 
preparing our clients to be able to articulate if they or their spouse were not making a great deal of money, how the person that had their sign and support would support them. And there are several people we have told not to go to the consulate until, they're, until they have a larger income. Uh, we also get proof they have not used public benefits. We also get proof uh, that they would not go on to public benefits by showing their career path where they would go and, and enabling and teaching them to be able to articulate this in the few minutes they have with the consular officer about this process. Now, this article from Reuters goes on to say that lawyers for some immigrants say consular officers are denying visas even when applicants fill legal requirements. That is true in regards to benefits. Um, the Department of State in their 2000, January 2018 proposal, uh, received over 200,000 public comments. Uh, I mean, think about that, 200,000 public comments. Um, people are complaining that, that the Department of State's already implementing this, but I will tell you, if you look at the Department of State bypassing the APA or bypassing the process, um, you would see that they're simply really looking at the statute. Um, in a lawsuit in a Maryland federal court, the government rejected accusations that the Foreign Affairs Manual changes are motivated by any antipathy towards immigrants and argued that such guidance is not to the court view anyway. You know, it's the Department of State saying, well, you know, we're God. That's, con- that's the doctrine of concert on reviewability, which belongs on the ash heap of history. Um, if you take a look at the actual um, process of, uh, of this uh, uh, of, of Section 212 and the language of Section 212 as it applies to uh, the public charge grounds, I think you get a, a real, a better, a better understanding of uh, how this process works. Now, you go down to uh, 212A. I'll take a look at it here. We'll go through 212A. One, two, three. I believe it's uh, four here. Let's go scroll down a little further as part of this process and really understand what the statute means. So 212A4 says this, any alien who in the opinion of the consular officer at the time of the application for a visa or the attorney general time of the application for adjustment of status uh, is, is likely at any time to become a public charge and admissible. Now taking literally Aren't we all going to become public charge beneficiaries at some point? We're going to use Social Security. We're all going to get that, right? Uh, we may, uh, may lose our job. That's a possibility for a lot of people. So this idea that you may at any time become a public charge, that is so broad as to be meaningless. Now, there has been no legislation attacking um, the vague nature of this, uh, the vague nature. Any time you become a public charge, what does that even mean? Um, factors to be taken into account. Now, these are statutory. And the State Department, what they're arguing is, we're simply implementing the statutory meaning in a way that's common in, in vernacular. So in determining whether an alien is inadmissible under this paragraph, the consular officer or attorney general shall, at a minimum, consider the alien's age, health, family status, Assets, resources, and financial status, and education and skills. In addition to the factors under this clause, the consular officer may also consider any affidavit of support. That's the Form I-864. So many lawyers have treated the affidavit of support as being an automatic, as being a, hey, if you signed it, 
you're golden kind of situation. So you don't need to worry about that process going forward because you have an FC report and you meet 125% of poverty level income. Well, as you can see in the actual statute of the process, the actual statute of this, that's not enough. That is, hey, you can consider it, but it's not the be-all, end-all. And it has been considered for more than 22 years as the be-all, end-all of making sure that a person is not going to be a public charge. Uh, but now, Department of State is saying, well, yeah, I don't really care about that much anymore. I'm going to look at, are you old? So we've seen a lot of denials of moms and dads who were in their 60s or 70s or 80s with the argument, well, you're going to go on you know, Social Security when you get up there. You're going to go on Medicare. You're going to, even though you can't for five years, get on these things. But you will eventually at any time, therefore, I'm going to deny you. Uh, so therefore denying the reunification of families. Um, now, some people would say, well, clearly Congress did not intend that. Well, I don't think that's true. I think Congress absolutely intended this. You have to go back to the Congress of 1996 that rewrote this law and put it into the statute uh, as part of IRA-IRA. And what we see as part of that, what we're hearing and what we felt at the time, what it was all designed to limit legal immigration to the United States. And by limiting legal immigration to the United States, it put us in a situation where individuals uh, really had to uh, show way more than poverty-level income and take a look at these factors as part of this process. So as lawyers today... We have to be considering each of these factors, age, health, family status, assets, resources, financial status, as well as education and skills, and perhaps presenting that in writing to the consulate separate and apart from the affidavit of support. Now, the problem is, as lawyers are not allowed in the consulate, uh, so that means you have to educate your client about how you present this how you move forward with this. So take take this, lawyers that are listening to this or individuals who make a consular process. You have to be prepared to deal with this very specific rule um, going forward uh, in a way that is effective at the consulate level and will shortly be in place at the adjustment of status level. Now, the good news on the adjustment of status front is a lawyer is sitting next to you. The lawyers can advocate for it. The lawyers can sue the government when they when they use this as a grounds to reject somebody. Um, now, there is discretion in here uh, when it uses the word may um, at the time of the visa application if they're likely to become a public charge. That means the government will have to show the government carries the burden, I believe, if showing they would likely become a public charge. Um, now, in our new format here on America's Web Radio, on the Immigration Hour, no longer on America's Web Radio, uh, is that we uh, don't have commercial breaks. We're not going to stick a commercial and make you listen to news about our law firm. Uh, but I would have you this. I attended a, uh, an event for Immigrants List in Washington, D.C., where we honored uh, Kamala Harris, 
um, with a, with an immigrant rights award for fighting for immigrants um, with the legislation she's worked on and the work she did as Attorney General of California. But I would encourage you to uh, go to the website for Immigrants List uh, and make a small contribution today, Immigrants List represents immigrants, uh, represents immigrants and lawyers and all people who are part of the immigration community as they advocate with and support financially uh, people running for office in the United States that are pro immigration and pro immigration reform. So if you'd like to support, uh, those candidates uh, that are uh, specifically those that can win their races and can be supported by uh, by the uh, by the community. Uh, this is the one pack out there that does that. So go to Immigrants List. It was founded by Ira Kersban and the late Mike Maggio. I'm honored to be part of it, uh, and so grateful for the work that they do as they support candidates. We have a huge election coming up here in the uh, in in the next. Uh, uh, 18 months, and having the support of uh, individuals uh, that support immigrants and running for office is absolutely key. So I put my plug in there for immigrants uh, as part of the process. Now, I do want to touch on next. Our next topic today is H-1Bs. Yes, so we've had this uh, H-1B process uh, that just had the lottery uh, go into effect. Uh, the lottery, interestingly enough, received substantially more applications this year uh, than we have of either of the last two years. Um, word is that uh, over 210,000 people um, had H-1B applications filed on their behalf by their employers in the United States. Uh, and it's great to see that number going up, even in light of the fact that the denial rates for H-1Bs has skyrocketed. I'm really talking about skyrocketed um, after uh, the Trump administration put their new rules into place over the last uh, year. And we saw denial rates that went up by 300 uh, percent. Denial rates on H-1B visas exceeded 25 percent from historic numbers that were around 6 to 7 to 8 percent. Um, without any change in the law. Now, think about that. If the law didn't change, so there's no change in the law, why did the, why did the denial rate get so high? What about that process caused that to happen? Um, now, you could say, well, uh, maybe immigration is just paying more attention to the application, or maybe there's just crappier applications being filed, or maybe what really happened is they simply changed much like the Department of State has changed their interpretation and approach to a pre-existing law, USCIS, through training, through pressure, through who knows what at this point, has changed how they view what is a specialty occupation and what they view as the minimum qualifications for these positions. Uh, with this extraordinarily high denial rate, um, as part of the process. Um, what we're going to see uh, is, I think, uh, a greater focus on, uh, on how lawyers, and us particularly, and employers, approach the filing of H-1Bs. For example, we didn't file a single computer systems analyst this year because immigration decided to deny so many of them in the last couple of years. So people's job titles have changed. Job descriptions have become more detailed, more professional. 
paying more attention to the words used in these titles and paying more attention to the specific requirements for these jobs. I would suspect that this year that we will see a much lower uh, number of H-1B, well, I hate to say much lower, that we will see a lower level of denials of H-1Bs um, as, part of, uh, as, as part of this year's fiscal numbers because employers are doing a better job and lawyers are doing a better job of actually filing for these petitions. Um, you know, in 2018, we had uh, 190,000 applications filed. Uh, for uh, H-1Bs. Um, and this year we had over 25,000 more uh, application filings uh, done, by the, uh, uh, done by employers in America. Now, we also saw apparently an 11% increase in the number of uh, H-1B filings for master's degree candidates. Now, that's interesting. The Immigration Service projected, USCIS, Projected that there would be um, a 17% increase in master's degree filings, but there's only been an 11% increase in master's degree filings. Um, now, th- this year, the Immigration Service uh, indicated that they were changing and changed their rules to change how H1B selection works. So instead of doing the 65,000 person lottery first, um, uh, they've changed the order in which they're doing these applications. Uh, so the change this year is uh, in the past they would select the 20,000 master's exempt first and then dump everybody in the lottery. Now they're putting everybody in the general 65,000 person lottery and then a second run for the 20,000 lottery for the master's exempt people. Now immigration uh, estimated that they w- this would increase the chances of uh, master's degree candidates of being selected by almost 20%. Uh, now, we're gonna, it's interesting to see whether that statistic proves true or not. Uh, but what we see that despite uh, the USCIS and the Trump administration trying to limit access to the H-1B, that the demand is still there. Demand is still there. Because we have over a million and a half jobs for people that are open for people we don't have that physically aren't present in the United States. Uh, uh, so having only 215,000 people apply seems to be an artificial uh, limiting by the difficulty, this arbitrary cap, on the number of workers that are truly needed in the economy. And if you have 1.5 million job openings for which there are no bodies, and that number comes from the BLS statistical survey from last, uh, last two weeks ago, which says there are 7.7 million jobs, but only just over 5 million people looking for jobs in America that are eligible to, 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 to work. Um, so this cap selection process is... Um, uh, <clears throat> problematic because it shouldn't even exist with that many open jobs. But more importantly, it looks like uh, we're going to have um, uh, this cap in place. Now, we just received our first cap selection uh, for a master's degree candidate for one of our clients yesterday by email. We premium process this case. Um, what we don't know are the secrets uh, behind this process. Um, for example, we don't know how many H-1Bs 
immigration is actually notifying for selection. Now, if they use last year's uh, model of denials, they would presumably pick 25% more people than the numbers allowed uh, for selection on the basis that they would be denying 25% of the visas that are they're applied for. <clears throat> now, if that's the case, um, and we have this going forward, <clears throat> what we have to be understanding of, what we have to be understanding of is truly to understand, is the immigration really doing this? Are they really picking the correct number of H-1B visa holders? Sorry for that quick break there. We had to get our uh, language done. Our, <laughs> my cough was crazy. So we don't even know how many people they're actually notifying to be part of this process. Uh, that's a problem. We don't know if they've actually issued the allotted, the allotted number of visas last year. We don't know if they issued 85,000. They're not disclosing this information. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how this works. Now, on related H-1B news, uh, the word keeps coming back uh, that uh, uh, Miller, uh, uh, President Miller, uh, President Trump's uh, immigration brain, wants USCIS to implement the H-4 elimination of EADs. He wants to get the EADs out of the hands of hundreds of thousands of H-1B spouses. Um, now, somebody at USCIS is clearly uh, trying to stop that from regulation from going forward, and every large company in America and every consortium of companies in America is fighting against this um, uh, against this process uh, and trying to, to not have that go into effect. Um, we are going to be really, really interesting to see if, in fact, this goes into effect because it will cause not only massive layoffs at companies gradually over the time that their EADs expire, uh, but more importantly, it will cause people to rethink whether they should stay in the United States and be on the H-1Bs because they will, they will go from two-income to one-income households, and many of them are living in some of the most expensive cities in the world where a two-income household is absolutely necessary. What we really need to focus on is why Congress is not having hearings about these cases. Why is Congress not making sure uh, that there is a system in place, um, a process in place, a law itself that allows H-4s to work? It's proven to be a wildly effective program. It's proven to be very helpful to companies in the United States for additional skilled workers because so many H-4 workers have bachelor's degrees, have educations, and they can work in the fields that sometimes their, their spouses even work in. So what we're going to do is keep our eye on this H-1B, H-4 issue. Uh, we'll report back in a couple of weeks and let you know, our listeners know, what percentage of H-1Bs that we got. We, we only filed about 100 of these. I had a friend of mine who filed 6,000 H-1B applications uh, for a couple of his clients. And, uh, you know, think about that. I don't even want to, I don't even want to think about that. Um, but the demand is clearly there for these visas. Now, one reform that you could make to this program is you could have a separate visa 
a separate type of work visa that's much more highly regulated uh, for, let's say, computer positions. Um, we'll call them entry-level computer positions or lower-level computer positions. And leave the H-1Bs to other types of professional positions, let's accountants, lawyers, doctors, um, have a different type of H-1B rather than one H-1B to fit every category. This is, again, a problem with our immigration system is it was last tweaked for, for the way they work in 1990. And so we don't, we didn't even think about hundreds of thousands of computer jobs that didn't exist back then. Um, we, we, we really had the specialty occupation for what were considered to be typical professional positions, like doctors and lawyers and accountants and teachers and, uh, and such. If we don't reapproach this, then we're really putting our own economy at jeopardy uh, because we are really going to be affected um, uh, how affecting how we can keep bringing good talent in these in these high level, uh, highly educated positions to the United States, and really being effective in how that works going forward. Um, now, one more uh, take one more break here on the immigration hour. I would uh, encourage you as well. I spent this last uh, Thursday in Washington D.C meeting with my senators and my congressmen uh, about the immigration issues. And one thing that became really quite clear is they're not hearing from enough of us. Oh, sure, the Twitter sphere has, and the Twitterverse has lots of, you know, people whining and moaning about fixing the law and, and going after politicians for doing crazy stuff and, um, you know, trying to rein in the anti-immigration forces. But I will tell you, Congressmen and senators still count phone calls. And unless you're calling your congressman and your senator on a regular congressman on a regular basis, I can tell you the only people they're hearing from are the anti-immigration people. And so we will continue to see anti-immigration congressmen and senators in our Congress because that's who they think is going to be voting for them. Uh, I'm in Georgia, and our senator... Senator David Perdue has basically reintroduced his Raise Act, added one more sponsor, so now there's three whole senators that support it, which cuts legal immigration by 50%. Uh, I have called Senator Perdue's office countless times. I think they know my voice when I call now. And I was uh, uh, last week uh, involved with the group that went to his office. Uh, they have they have clearly decided that immigration is bad for America. That's what they believe. Um, and so we have to work on politics. We have to work, one, on getting those kind of politicians out of office. And that includes voting, includes advocating, includes giving money to places like immigrant lists uh, to fight against these people. But also it, it involves us encouraging those congressmen who or senators who haven't made up their mind or who or are supportive of our cause to make sure their voices are heard as well. So I'd encourage you uh, all to get involved in, actively uh, in, uh, in the political sphere. Uh, we've got a big election coming up, and we are uh, going to be having a big fight about this issue. Immigration, Trump has decided that immigration is going to be a key issue for him uh, going forward. Uh, immigration is, uh, he's going to use as a weapon. He's going to try to weaponize it again in the next election. And we have to be prepared for that. Um, now, 
getting back to the topics uh, of this, I, I think it would be unwise to not spend some time this week talking about the Trump administration's internal fight on immigration uh, and literally the vast numbers of missing people in the uh, Department of State and the USCIS and DHS and ICE structure uh, of senior leadership. Uh, part of the reason we're seeing the crisis, uh, a humanitarian crisis on the border, because it's not an immigration crisis, we've handled far greater numbers in the past, um, but the humanitarian crisis, because nobody seems to be in charge of this issue in the Trump administration. Uh, that's because uh, there really is nobody that's the head of ICE. He, he let the guy, uh, the guy he nominated, Vitello, uh, he, uh, he unnominated him uh, and uh, then uh, put forward uh, this new fellow uh, who worked, oddly enough, under the Obama administration and very closely with the Obama administration on a lot of policy issues, but who people seem to think is, is just a real hard-nosed dude on, on enforcement, that he says, hey, we're going to enforce the law at 100%. <clears throat> now, these guys uh, are clearly not prosecutor types, because no prosecutor in America enforces the law to 100%. This is why you have prosecutorial discretion. But the Trump administration has decided to forego the idea of prosecutorial discretion and simply deport as many people as they possibly can for whatever immigration violation they possibly can in doing so. Um, that's how you get some of the crazy things uh, that come out, um, uh, including the story that broke this morning uh, on the issue of deporting the spouse of a soldier who was killed in Afghanistan. Now think about that. Uh, the Trump administration yesterday or earlier this week deported a man whose wife had been killed in Afghanistan. Why in the world would that happen? You haven't heard this story? Let's take a look at what this really is. Uh, this man, uh, whose wife uh, was a fallen soldier uh, and had been killed in, I believe, 2011 in Afghanistan, was raising their 12-year-old daughter in the United States as a single dad. Um, immigration officials deported him last week, leaving the couple's 12-year-old daughter in Phoenix by herself, then apparently reversed their decision on Monday, and he was allowed to return to the United States. Jose Gonzalez Carranza was arrested by immigration officers last Monday on his way to a welding job and then immediately deported to Nogales, Sonora, early Thursday morning. He was married to Army PFC Barbara Vieira, who was killed on September 18, 2010, while serving in the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. She was 22. During an interview, Gonzalez Carranza told the Arizona Republic he was allowed to reenter the U.S. from the Deconcini port of entry on Monday afternoon. He said he was then driven back to Phoenix where ICE officials dropped him off at the agency's headquarters downtown. ICE officials offered no explanation for the decision to allow him to return to the U.S., but Hernandez believes the reversal was triggered by the media attention the deportation uh, uh, received. Gonzalez was eager to see his daughter. He said he had not told her he had been deported because he was afraid she would be further traumatized after the loss of her mother. Gonzalez um, said he had been living in a shelter for deported immigrants, migrants in Nogales, Mexico, a city he didn't know, and was tremendously worried about his daughter. Hernandez says it seemed cruel for ICE to inflict additional pain on the man and his daughter, noting that the trauma they experienced at the death of his spouse. There are plenty of guys you can go after, 
but not a guy whose wife died in Afghanistan. Um, you know, this is what you get. It's, as Cecilia uh, Wang said of the ACLU, quote, it's the height of cruelty for ICE to deport the father of a child whose mother died while serving in the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. The government can exercise discretion not to pursue deportation against the sole remaining parent of a U.S. citizen child under these circumstances. Um, it, uh, it's stunning to me um, ab about this. Um, now, I'll give you more about this guy. He came to the U.S. in 2004 when he was a teenager. He married his wife in 07. Um, he had been granted what's called parole in place, which allows immigrants in the country to remain without threat of deportation. An immigration judge had terminated deportation proceedings based upon a parole in place. Um, but ICE had refiled his deportation case in 2018, uh, and he didn't show up for court because he never received the notice. ICE sent it to the wrong address. Why would ICE reinstate removal proceedings against a man who'd been granted parole in place whose wife had died in Afghanistan? O-M-G. ICE then showed up at his house. They knew, they knew his wife had been killed in Afghanistan. They knew this because it's in the little brown folder they have with his information where he had gotten parole in place. And they showed up at his house and literally last Monday and took him into custody. Um, his lawyer immediately filed a motion to reopen with an automatic stay. But ICE deported him anyway. This is truly stunning incompetence. No, I don't think it's incompetence. They intentionally did this. Intentionally did this. Um, and... Um, it, to me, by the way, he was handcuffed at the border crossing when he was allowed back into the U.S. and then transported to their office in handcuffs. That is truly stunning um, that, he, uh, that he has not been able to process for his green card. He's eligible for a green card, for goodness sakes. He's a widow of a U.S. citizen, and he was granted populist. Now, why this wasn't done previously, why he didn't process, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Could be his lawyer, could be him, could be the immigration service. But think about this. We're spending time and resources on a guy like this, and not just one, million agents show up to arrest this guy. What are they doing on the border? Their ICBP is saying they don't have enough people to process uh, the migrants that are showing up at ports of entry. But CBP is not allocating more people to the border. CBP is not asking for help from the USCIS to have more asylum officers do pre-screenings for a credible fear. They're not asking ICE to contribute agents to help with the processing of the border uh, because these people are released into ICE custody as soon as they're done with their credible fear interview. Instead, they spend their time, their efforts, our money, deporting the spouse of a fallen soldier. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff... Uh, that makes uh, no sense um, uh, as part of this process. It makes no sense as part of the, the process. Um, and I think that we, that we as, uh, as, let's say, immigration lawyers, uh, as, uh, as people who um, uh, understand immigration perhaps more than most, uh, need to do a better job of, of getting uh, the information out there um, as part of, uh, of how we help people 
uh, move forward uh, and, and as we help change and cement in kind um, the help that America is to the world, the, the shining city on a hill uh, that Reagan talked about. A lot of us were inspired by that speech, uh, move forward with that speech. It helped me become an immigration lawyer when he gave that speech. Um, I think that uh, we, we as a whole uh, need to be better at this. Um, and uh, I will tell you that there are a lot of other uh, things going on out there in, in the world. Um, there's a great article in Salon that came out yesterday uh, that I think would be good reading. Uh, and and uh, the title of it's really interesting. What if Trump's war on immigrants is not just a cruel, not just cruel and lawless, but is a dead end for the economy? Now, we've had people like David Beer and Alex Naraste, economists from the Cato Institute, who write on immigration on our show before. Um, but I, I think they would argue that it clearly is. This war on immigrants, that's what it's become. It is a dead end for our economy. Um, now, it's interesting because Trump himself realizes this. Let's not kid ourselves. He, his own hotels use H-2B workers. He knows without them, they close. They don't have workers. doesn't matter what you pay them. There aren't any bodies to do a lot of those jobs. So if he understands this, at least on a base level, why does he, why does he want to get rid of all immigrants? That's what he wants to do. It's in this, I love when, when Congress says, well, I'm all in favor of legal immigration. No, you're not. No, you're not. Not if you support Trump on this issue. Because he and his people don't want legal immigrants. That's why they want to reduce the ability to bring family to the country. That's why they have substantially reduced refugees to unheard of numbers. Uh, it's why they want to bar asylum. From, they literally want to eliminate asylum as a form of relief. Do you not remember World War II? They want to cut in half the number of available people that come to the U.S. to work legally at a time when we have record low unemployment. She touts continuously a record number of job openings for which we don't have bodies. And yet he wants to cut this? Now, clearly there is an economic impact as part of this. Um, Trump, um, uh, if, he, if he focuses on this stuff, you know, like he focuses on a lot of economic issues, the economy in 2018 grew by 2.9%, um, although it was moving uh, at least one quarter at 4.2%. Um, but there's actually a lot of these economic challenges in our country on their way where our birth rate is dropping to its lowest level perhaps in decades, probably since, world, since, the, since the Great Depression. Um, that, in turn, puts great pressure on Social Security earnings and Medicare, as the entire uh, population ages. Uh, Germany, when faced with this exact crisis of, of demographics, policymakers embrace immigrants, even invested in them as a down payment on the stability of entitlements. So the article says this, what's kind of crazy is that in the dark age of Trump, we have to relearn what we already knew. America's secret sauce that has the potential to foster broad-based prosperity has always been immigration. Immigrants are our secret sauce. It's one of the reasons I love what I do. I make America every day using the secret sauce of immigrants. Um, and economically, it's allowed us and continues to allow us to be financially the leader of the world, economically the powerhouse of the world. Um, and if, if we abandon this, if we abandon this process, um, then 
we face a crucial economic downturn. Um, it's funny because um, uh, there were a couple of studies out there talking about the number of immigrants that, that came to New York between 94 and 2004. Uh, the number of businesses in the city increased by 10%. The number of businesses in neighborhoods with high concentration of immigrants grew far faster than 55% more businesses in Flushing at the end of the 10-year period than the beginning. Sunset Park at 48% more. Sheepshead Bay, Brighton Beach at 34% more. Um, number of homicides dropped in that same time from... 2,154 in 1990 to 289 in 2018. Probably why um, Long Order went off the air. There just wasn't enough homicides anymore. Um, and it's become better. And we actually run the risk if we buy into this, the, the dystopia that is the Trump immigration policy and people like Stephen Miller that 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 want to get these agencies to do even worse stuff that they're doing. Guys like uh, Cisna at USCIS and guys like the new head of ICE and CBP, we are facing a crisis. And uh, that crisis um, will be to our detriment economically going forward. All right, everybody, it's been a great week this week. If you have any questions or comments about the Immigration Hour, you can reach me at chuck at immigration.net. Uh, this will be posted to our website uh, as soon as I can figure out GarageBand um, at, uh, at www.immigration.net uh, slash musings on immigration. We'll be back next week with another show. Until next week, uh, have a great time and pray that immigrants keep coming to America. Ciao.